This is the Tea Room Podcast. I'm Wendy John. Thanks for joining me. I hope you have a nice relaxing cuppa on standby this episode because I'm going in hard early on with a quote from the ancient Greek philosopher Plato. If you do not take an interest in the affairs of your government, then you are doomed to live under the rule of fools. So what have the fools been up to lately? Or to be more diplomatic, what's been happening in health politics this year? Polly Payne, political reporter for the Medical Republic, is the one in the know. Polly joins us now to give us a rundown of the biggest stories of the year to date. Welcome, Polly. Wendy, thanks so much for having me. Zempic is the big drug story of the year. It's a brand of semaglutide that's in Australia for the treatment of type 2 diabetes, but it's going viral for its weight loss outcomes. Demand is through the roof. Now we're in shortage. What's been going on with this miracle drug of the year? That's right, Wendy. So it's actually been in shortage for a while, probably since mid last year, and it's slowly coming back into supply as we speak. So what are the expectations around dates? The general consensus is that supply is easing now with new stock coming in, but probably we're looking towards the middle of the year for things to really return to normal. And it has just been because of this incredible increase that the drug manufacturer, Novo Nordisk, was just not prepared for. But they've been really plugging it pretty hard. I can't understand how they wouldn't prepare for a huge response. That's exactly right. Novo Nordisk have, well, it's been revealed recently that they've done things like sponsor the creation of weight loss medicine units for medical students. And they're actually in hot water just last week in the UK. So the British pharmaceutical industry group over there has expelled it for two years because Novo Nordisk promoted this event, which was actually also funded by them a little bit. That event promoted one of their semaglutide drugs and they mentioned other weight loss drugs on the market and their side effects, but they did not mention any side effects to do with their drug when it got mentioned, which is pretty interesting. That's one of the big concerns that GPs are having around the side effects. People are coming into GPs asking for it by name but the side effects are not something that's being communicated anywhere near as much as the weight loss. Yes. So, I mean, in terms of evidence for weight loss, there's been this one big study that kind of keeps getting referred back to where participants lost about 15% of their body weight and they were able to keep that off for two years, but they had to keep taking the drug. That's the thing. It's kind of setting people up for, you know, maybe a lifetime of using this medicine. And I think it's pretty easy to see how that's a big potential profit. The lifetime dependency. There's a lot of other research around this kind of a drug though too that is not necessarily quite as convincing. Yeah, I think everyone's waiting for the other shoe to drop, Wendy. From the experts I've spoken to, everyone's just kind of waiting to see, well, what's the side effect going to be? I mean, if we look into the past, basically every miracle cure for weight loss has had some sort of horrible side effect. You know, I think they used to literally give out methamphetamine and that has some side effects, but it did cause weight loss. Fenfen in the 1990s was touted as the next big thing for weight loss. And it wasn't until post-market that they found out that, oh, sometimes it does cause your heart to stop beating. That was promptly taken away. It's a pretty significant side effect. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was at a wedding recently and when I told someone I was a medical journalist, they told me about their gallbladder surgery 
and they'd been on a Zempic. Oh, wow. And their surgeon had said, oh, this is probably due to the drug. And like, No way. From the study group of one that I have conducted, yes, <laughs> yeah. There's a lot to be dug into in this one. So who deserves the drugs? Like there's a, there's a short supply. Who gets it? So at the moment, it's only been approved by the TGA for use as a drug for people with type 2 diabetes who have poor glycemic control and insulin resistant. So that's the group that acutely needs it, perhaps, some would say, in this time of shortage. But there's also this other argument kind of from the obesity side where seeing this shift in discussion of how we view obesity, you know, more research is suggesting that it's actually not just a lack of willpower on the individual's part, but it's genetic factors, it's social factors. There's normally quite a few things at play that cause someone to be obese. And I think it's still in this weird space of, okay, well, people with type 2 diabetes need this medicine because they're sick, but, oh, people with obesity, are, it's still very much tied up in this kind of moral failing idea. But yeah. I think the way we look at that is changing and it's going to be a really interesting spot to watch. Okay, moving on to we're now in March and the AFL season has well and truly kicked off, but it's also been kicking off a class action lawsuit against the AFL. What's happening there? Extremely smooth, Wendy. Thank you. Thank you. Nice segue. (laughs) Well, we've known about chronic traumatic encephalopathy, CTE for short, for a while. You know, if you look at historical records, we've always known that a few too many bumps to the head will lead you to some neuro decline in your later years. In fact, it was originally called dementia pugilista, as in dementia of the boxer. But CTE is this condition, not just had multiple concussions, but had multiple sub-concussive blows. Because that's quite a distinction, isn't it? Like you don't have to be knocked out and have just repeated blows to the head or knocks to the head to create CTE. Exactly. That's what the kind of current science is leaning towards. I mean, the major problem here is that you cannot diagnose it definitively until after death. So a bit late then, isn't it? It is a bit late. Hopefully something will come along in the screening world that will simplify that process. But for the moment, that's the only way to diagnose it. And that leaves a lot of room for these sporting associations to have kind of plausible deniability, and they are leaning heavily into that plausible deniability. You can't prove it, therefore you can't sue us. So to date, none of the peak Australian sports medicine bodies have officially acknowledged the link between sports-related head knocks and CTE. That's correct. There is expected to be a kind of change of stance on that Hopefully early next year, there's been a recent Senate inquiry, which is why it's kind of in the news again. And in that, the sports medicine bodies did indicate that they would likely be updating their position, but that just there's no guarantee of when that will actually come out. I think it's kind of thought that the sports medicine bodies particularly are quite close to industry. Very diplomatic way of saying it, yeah. It's going to be one to watch, I think, Eventually, it seems like the evidence is getting so weighty on the side of repeated head trauma causing CTE and sports, specifically, you know, even AFL, which is kind of prided itself on being the, like, not as heavy duty as, like, gridiron in the US, for instance. One of the heads of the AFL, even a few years ago, was saying, oh, we're never going to find an AFL player with CTE because our game is safe. Well, they've found one, so... 
that ship has sailed. Yeah. <laughs> unfortunately, and I think it's a big hole and it's shaping up to be one of the biggest possible scandals in sport history of our kind of decade even maybe. A lot of money involved. So you've got the Margaret injury lawyers onto the case. You've got the parliamentary inquiry looking at it. What's the RACGP's line? Yeah, well, the uh, College of GPs recommends strong approaches to be taken by sporting bodies to prevent concussion and repeated head trauma. It's recommending things like adapting the rules of their sports, which has kind of consistently been one of the big sticking points it's difficult for sporting bodies to commit to. A massive cultural change. Exactly. And it's not just contact sports. You've got headers in soccer. Yeah, well, exactly, Wendy. One of the most recent research papers to come out looked at soccer players in Sweden and it found that they had a 50% higher chance than non-soccer player peers to develop like wow. neurocognitive decline in later years. Yeah. Equestrian's another big one. And we've seen this awesome surge in women's sport over the last few years and it's going to be really interesting to see how that affects women's sport mm. as well. So it's a really big impact across I guess, preferences in Australia around sport. And, yeah, and you know, to its credit, I guess the AFL, while not acknowledging CTE as much of a problem, it's has introduced some rule changes to maybe minimise head trauma. It's introduced longer players off-field sessions, but at the moment we're still seeing it very much focused on preventing concussion. But we know now that it's not just concussion, it's all head blows. So what's your prediction on how the lawsuit might play out? Well, we've already seen this happen in America with Gridiron and those players won a $1 billion payout and that sporting code has been very upfront in admitting CTE. And I think, you know, hopefully that is the way forward. We look at minimising head blows, all of them across the board. $1 billion does tend to change things. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, speaking of money, payroll tax, another nice segue, continues to be a thorn in the side of faithful GPs everywhere. Fill us in on what's been happening with the Thomas and Nas case. Well, the latest in Thomas and Nas is that the New South Wales Court of Appeal dismissed its the application to appeal the tribunal decision in their case. So that left them liable for about five years' worth of back payroll tax. So mm-hmm. considering the payroll tax across all states and territories is about 5%, that leaves lots of people quaking in their boots. That's um, 5% is also, you know, the profit margin of most practices. So what's the response been? In terms of government response, state to state, pretty much everywhere is on the same page in that there is <laughs> harmonized tax conditions across all the eastern states and South Australia. So everyone's going to be applying this. And it's, I guess, it's not really a new law. It's it's just a clarified interpretation of what is considered a relevant contract. Queensland is the only state so far to have introduced a amnesty period. So it's said, hey, uh, we understand that this is going to really affect general practice, so we're going to give you until mid-2025 to sort everything out and you can report to us and we'll give you amnesty right up until that point. But it seems likely that if you do do that and you do take them up on that offer, you're probably going to be in for an audit come August 2025. So 
it's going to be interesting one to watch. I mean, I can't say either way I'm not in the Queensland Revenue Office, so I don't know what the plan is, but it's interesting to say the least. And Western Australia is the fun outlier in that it's not part of the harmonised tax provisions. So when I corresponded with their tax office, they've actually said, well, you know, Thomas and Nas doesn't apply here and we consider all GPs as contractors, you know, until otherwise. So that's... So there's going to be an influx of GPs to WA from the eastern states. I mean, potentially. (laughs) That would solve a lot of uh, some of the rural and regional needs that they have there for GPs. Look, hey, one way to attract (laughs) a workforce, tax advantages. Look, should this strike fear into the hearts of, of most clinic owners? I mean... Obviously, I can't give any financial or legal advice. I think that's important to make clear. But one of the interesting things is that the judges did mention specifically that the payment flows in the Thomas and Nas case were kind of a big factor. So in the Thomas and Nas situation in that clinic, what was happening was patients were paying the clinic and then the clinic would give doctors 70% of that. So essentially the clinic was paying the doctors, whereas in lots of other situations, you can have doctors who are paid by the patient and then they give their 30% to the practice. So it's the same money flow. In different directions. It's a different direction. And one of the really interesting things is that there were three doctors at the Thomas and Nars Clinic who were doing it that way. They were doing their patient billings directly and they were not included in this whole thing. So if you're looking at indicators that the tax office is going to, you know, yes or no, money flows could be a pretty big factor. And David Darm, who writes for the Medical Republic, a long-term medical practice and tax advisor, he sort of spoke to that as well, saying that there were complexities in the Thomas and Nuz case that aren't widespread. It's not a broad brushstroke for all clinics. It's a specific clinic with specific circumstances relating to its practices. Yeah, I think there's been a lot of fear about the Thomas and Naz and what this could mean for lots of practices. And I think everyone is understandably very nervous. I mean, people signed up to be doctors, not small business owners, I think is one of the things at the heart of the stress here. We do need to sit back and look at how this plays out in the longer term. But at the same time, You know, you could argue that the advocacy work by the doctors' groups is actually just drawing more attention to this problem. You know, it's jumping up and down and saying, here, look, we we have this problem. Don't audit us, please. But at the same time, you know, what are you meant to do? You can't just sit back and let it happen either. So it will certainly be one to watch unless you're in Western Australia. The land of the Great West. Thank you so much, Holly, for joining us here in the Tea Room today, sharing your political insights. We look forward to getting you on for the next political roundup down the track. Wendy, thank you. That was Holly Payne, political reporter from the Medical Republic. I'm Wendy John. Thanks for joining me in the Tea Room. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can search for us on your favourite podcast player and subscribe. Leave us a review if you like. If you have any news tips or want to chat, you can email me at wendy at medicalrepublic.com.au. The Tea Room is a production from the journalists at the Medical Republic. Visit us at medicalrepublic.com.au to keep up to date with all the latest news and views in general practice. And while you're there, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter. We love to keep you informed. Thanks for tuning in.